here on the big wheel, we're going to spin it for, for prizes. All right. The church Good morning, guys. How you doing? How is everybody? Out there online, how you guys all doing out there in Tanzania, our brothers and sisters all over the world? Um, glad that you guys are here. I have a word for us today. Um, we're continuing in the, uh, the epistle that James wrote, and um, the book of James, it might be called, or just simply James, that's where we are, um, and we're continuing our series called Works of the Heart, and it's called Works of the Heart because of this dichotomy that we have between what James is teaching here and what Paul and, frankly, the majority of the New Testament teaches, which is... Um, Faith is a gift from God, and faith does not require us to do anything to earn it or to exhibit that faith. It's not about what we do, and Paul says, so that nobody can boast, right? It makes it pretty clear. And then we get James coming out and saying, faith without works is dead. So how do we reconcile that? That is, that is something that's tough, and it's a point where a lot of people just go, I'm just not going to pay a whole lot of attention to James because of that. But James is a book that is so full of wisdom. It's so full of little just nuggets on how we should live our lives. Um, James comes at the life of a Christian, and he's specifically writing to and talking to Christians. Those have already declared their faith in Christ, received the Holy Spirit, and he specifically writes, and his angle is this, that if your faith does not produce real life change, then it's worthless. And in the big picture, he's right about that. Because your faith, you declare faith in Jesus Christ, you declare him as your Lord and Savior, you get your salvation, you get personal salvation, and you will end up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, all those things that were promised, and that's wonderful for you, but how does that change the world around us? How does that change the experience of those who are maybe seeking Jesus, maybe those who don't even know that they should be seeking Jesus? What we do matters, and that's why we're here. So we're in James. Chapter 1 is all about testing your faith in the face of adversity. Sounds fun, doesn't it? I mean, faith, faith is so easy, right? Isn't it easy to have faith in any circumstance? Anybody here struggle with faith? No, nah, I know. That's a rhetorical question. I know you don't. It's so easy to have faith, especially when everything in your life hits the fan at once, right? You're like, oh, I have total faith. God's got this. No problem. But there might be one or two of you who struggle with that. So that's what we're going to talk about here today. And today we have an interesting, it's only three verses that we're going to talk about here today. Um, it's short, but there's a lot to chew on. Last week, a quick recap for those of you who maybe weren't here, didn't catch last week. Quick recap, we were in James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, <coughs> where he starts out and says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Okay, very straightforward. But then he gives us this practical, practical but difficult instruction on how to navigate life's trials with confidence. And this is key. Verse 6, James 1, 6. Got it on screen here. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. What he's saying there, in a nutshell, is that your current circumstances, the trials you're going through or the blessings you're going through, cannot be allowed to change your level of faith. It cannot be allowed to, to dictate where your faith is. If you're going through a major season of blessing right now and things are just pouring your way and things are coming up, roses for you everywhere you go, it's a little easier to have faith, isn't it? God's answering all my prayers. Things are great. This is where I ought to be. That in itself is a danger. Because the flip side of that is I don't have everything I want. I'm not having my prayers answered. I don't even know that I hear from God, and therefore, my faith is going to be low. Both are equally dangerous, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. The goal, really, of course, and what James is talking about, is that we should have an eternal perspective on our lives, not just daily. If we're looking at the daily ups and downs, peaks and valleys of our lives, it's, gonna, it's probably going to make you dizzy with all the ups and downs. It's going to look like a roller coaster. We should have an eternal perspective. And just know that most of the tests and the trials that we go through in life aren't meant to punish us. They're meant to prepare us. And the same is true with the blessings that we go through. So they're meant to prepare us for facing the ultimate tribulation, which the Bible tells us is going to come and then receive the reward for standing firm in the faith when that happens. And you can't do that unless you've practiced dealing with trials. Until you've practiced dealing with the trials that come your way with the kind of faith that James is telling us we should. If you forget what some of those rewards are, let me refresh your memory. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. And then James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's going to be the first scripture that we start out with next week. There is a very real reward for the things that we do in this life with the new life that we've been given. So I have a question for you. Why did... Jesus, leave the disciples with these words. It's most, mostly credited with being basically the last instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Anybody know what that's commonly called? The Great Commission. And he says this to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Jesus is commanding them to go out into the world, a hostile world in most cases, knowing that they would all face persecution, they would all face difficulty, and most of them would end up being martyred, losing their lives for the faith. Why would Jesus send them out 
knowing that that was going to happen to them. Anybody have any ideas? It's because life is short. Life is short, but eternity is long. Eternity is long. But the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our lives on this earth today matters in eternity. Do we have any movie fans here? Any movie fans? In the words of Maximus Decimus Meridius, here we go. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Anybody ever seen that movie? Every single time I watch that movie, I just get chills. Such a powerful moment. And he was, he was, first of all, he's a fictional character, but he's based on a real guy, probably not a Christian. Most likely he was a stoic or some different variation of that. But it matters. And I think that James would have agreed with that statement. I think he would have agreed with that. So that's what we're going to talk about here today. It's a short section, only three verses, but as I said, it's a tough one. We're in James 1, verses 9 through 11. That's it, 9, 10, 11. Let me read it to you. Now, the brother or sister of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. You with me so far? Verse 10, but the rich person is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Have I lost a few of you there? Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also, the rich person, in the midst of his pursuits, will die out. Okay. The first part, a little bit easier to reconcile, but then like, all right. I'm struggling now with the last part of that. Let's talk about it. James, first of all, is writing to a group of people who've been driven out of their homes, most of them. Some of them were already uh, out in the countryside. They're not all refugees, but in a large part, they're refugees who have been driven out of their homes by a corrupt and evil Roman government bent on their destruction. And the rich and the poor Because even then, there were rich and there were poor. And he's writing to a Jewish audience who have converted to Christ, to follow Christ. And here they are, rich and poor alike. They're out in the countryside. They're hiding from this government. Government doesn't care if they're rich or poor. They're going to persecute them all. The rich may have a few more resources, but in general, they've been reduced to just fleeing. Just fleeing the danger that's there. And it's been kind of equalized at this point. And James, when we read that, James seems to be telling us that we should be happy if we're poor and humble. Okay? Most of us, again, I've, I've heard teaching on that. I understand. Poor and humble, you should, be, you should be happy in that situation. If I have nothing to lose, it's a little bit easier to be happy in the situation that I am. Now, he's also saying that we should be happy if we're rich and we lose everything. Is that a little harder to reconcile now? Happy if you're, if you're poor and humble and don't have much to lose, be, be happy. But if you're rich and you lose it all, be happy. Okay, that's harder. We're going to look at this a little bit closer. Let's go verse by verse. 
James 1, 9. Now the brother and sister of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. First thing I want to point out, just from a, from a reading standpoint, to help you understand, that first word, in my translation, the New American Standard is now. But your first word in verse 9 might be but, or let, or therefore, might be something like that. It's a conjunction. It means, based on what I just said, here's what you do. Okay, so we have to connect that to what he said previously. The original Greek for that word is however. Okay, and that tells, it's a, it's a conjunction word. So if we go back to verses 6 and 8, ask, it essentially says, ask God in faith and don't doubt, otherwise you shouldn't expect to receive anything. Therefore, the brother and sister of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. That's not anything new for most of us. We've heard teaching and teaching and scriptures upon scripture of, of things saying that God is going to glorify the humble. It's a common theme, and James would have known this. Now, if you're looking for a scripture that talks about God glorifying the humble, there's a large part of it that is New Testament scripture, which is fantastic for us, but James wouldn't have known that. That stuff didn't exist yet. He's talking about Old Testament prophecy, promises, Old Testament scripture. That promises the same thing, and that's what I'm going to share with you. Micah 6, 8 Prophet Micah says, has he told you, or he has told you, mortal one, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, do kindness, walk humbly with your God. Psalm 149.4 says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will glorify the lowly with salvation. Okay, and, there's, and there's many, many more. Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. goes on and on. There's so many. And it's not hard necessarily to struggle with that idea. I think we've all heard that concept. It's an easier one to grasp, I think. Now, James had recently heard, at least I believe he's heard, or at least heard of what Jesus had taught during the Sermon on the Mount, during the Beatitudes, in Luke, Luke records this, Luke 6, verse 20, and he raised his eyes toward the disciples and began saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So James is basically taking that that he heard Jesus teach during the Sermon on the Mount and applying it to our lives. So this is the idea that he's trying to explain here. And it's one thing to be taught it in concept. It's another thing to be happy about it in reality. Isn't it? Check out this clip here. Oh, dear Lord. You made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. Uh. So what would have been so terrible? If I had a small fortune. If I were a rich man. All day long I bidibidibum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. 
Great lyrics, right? Can you imagine writing those? What rhymes with dibby dibby dum? Clip from Fiddler on the Roof, obviously. Um, and the idea, the idea that he's talking about it, it, of just blessed humility is not especially hard to understand, but it can be a lot more difficult to accept. But here's where it gets a little bit more difficult, I think, to understand what James is getting at here. James 1.10, verse 10. But the rich person is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Anybody else struggling with that? This again parallels the teaching of Jesus on Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6.24. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. So James seems to be telling us that if you're rich and lose it, you should be happy about it. That word glory, the rich person is to glory in his humiliation. It, it's a Greek word. Here's your Greek lesson for today. Kaukomi. And kaukomi means to boast proudly or to live with your head up high. Anybody know someone who has been rich and lost everything who wasn't ashamed of it? Our society looks down on that. You were rich and you lost it all. Some people actually root for that. You're rich and you lost it all? Yay, that makes me happier. But this says that if you are the rich one and you lose it, you should glory in that. You should boast proudly that you lost it. Anybody still struggling with reconciling that idea? Little sidebar here, the poverty level, what's considered poor in the United States, this is just the most recent data, is 13590 a year. 13590 a year. Now, that's in the United States. Anybody know what the poverty level worldwide is? The worldwide average for the poverty level? $2.15 a day. And let me do the math for you. $785 a year. The poorest person in our country is blessed to be better off than most of the rest of the world. That's just how it is here. But if you were making, let's put you in those shoes. If you were making your entire income for the year, $785, could you boast proudly of your circumstances? Would you be proud of it? Not if money and possessions were your measure of blessing. I want you to hear that. Let me say it again. If money and possessions are your measure of God's blessing, you're not going to be happy. And I would argue that no matter your income level, if that's your measure, you will never be happy. If you consider yourself rich, there's the pursuit of more. And that's a danger. Let's go on to verse 11, and then we'll try and tie this all together. James 1.11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also, so also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will die out. 
famous scripture from Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to the same place. All came from dust and all return to dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We hear that at, at many memorial services. But that's so true. Maybe the most poetic description of the idea of wealth being fleeting, wealth being temporary, wealth being hard to hang on to, comes from Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Let me read it to you. Do not not weary yourself to gain wealth. Stop dwelling on it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. So true. So true. When you get and achieve this place to where in your mind you feel like it's wealth, your focus tends to turn towards maintaining that wealth and getting more wealth. It's just the way the world works. Now, it's one thing to be comfortable. Say, okay, I've achieved a place where, where I have what I need. My needs are met. I'm comfortable. My family has what we need. I can be happy in this place. Okay, that's a good, that's what the sweet spot is, right? But on either side of that is the temptation to focus more on your circumstances than on what you do and don't have. And what you do have is salvation in Jesus Christ. What you do have is reconciliation with the Lord. Those things can't be taken away. This is what James is getting at here. It's only three verses, but there's so much to take away. I'm going to kind of try and bullet point several of these for you just to kind of help us get our minds around it. Here we are. The first thing, first thing I want you to take away from this little section here is poor Christians and rich Christians, rich Christians, say that three times. Poor Christians and rich Christians are equally dependent on God for his blessing. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Doesn't have an income requirement there. Proverbs 22, 2. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. 1 Samuel 2.7 The Lord makes poor and rich. He humbles, he also exalts. The second point here. The trials of this world make both the rich and the poor equally dependent on God. Rich and the poor. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. If you're new to all this and the word tribulation doesn't make sense, it just means it's a trial. It's trouble. More accurately, a series of troubles. Fear not. There's no income requirement there either. First, uh, the third point. Both poverty and riches are tests of faith, but in different ways. Here's what I mean by that. Poverty, even perceived lack. Okay, again, I said, you know, if you're making more than $785 a year, you're better off than most of the rest of the world. But we still, especially if our measure is those around us, okay, you still have this perception that you're lacking, and even this perceived lack can tempt us, can tempt us, and temptation is from the enemy, can tempt us to focus more on what we don't have 
than what we do have. Poverty can tempt us into the worldly pursuit of wealth and we take our eyes off of eternity. Like I just want the here and now. Whatever, whoever I have to destroy, whatever I have to do to get it here and now, that's what matters to me. I've known people like that. Poverty can tempt us to believe that, to believe in the lie of Satan that we're somehow being punished by God because we have lack in our lives, because we have to do without sometimes, because we struggle sometimes. That lie is that God is punishing you for something. Poverty can tempt us into believing that we're not worthy somehow of God's blessing. That person, anybody ever do this? You automatically assume that person across the street that has everything, they must be doing it right. Whatever it is, they're doing it right, because look at that. That's not the case. And if we place what we see with our eyes and what we have and what we don't have, if we place that above God's blessing, the enemy's going to use that, and he's going to lie to you, and he'll go, yeah, you are nothing compared to them. See that car? See their house? You are not worthy. News update. What is it? Okay. Now here's the flip side. Wealth, on the other hand, can tempt us into believing that our comfort and status somehow have anything to do with us and what we can do and our value. Wealth and comfort do the very same thing. Wealth can tempt us into idolizing the pursuit of more wealth, more and more and more. And the wealthier you get, it doesn't seem like you ever reach a point where you're okay with that. Once you get to the point where the word billionaire is in your title, I have never known one who says, you know what, I'm pretty good where I am. No more acquisitions, no more mergers, no more long days. In fact, it seems to double down. And that happens. Wealth can tempt us to think that we're somehow better than those without wealth. I've done that. I don't consider myself wealthy by Highlands Ranch standards, which is where I live. Um, But for the rest of the world, I am. But even I have been tempted to look at people and go, why don't don't you just fix up your house? Why don't you just, what's wrong with you? Why doesn't it matter to you that you live in in a junky house and you have cars out in your parked in your front yard, you know, I've had that. And it's tempting. And the enemy wants to stir that up and go, yeah, you're better than them. Judge them. Judge them for the way that they live. Wealth can tempt us into believing that it has anything to do with our eternity. That's a harder one to nail down. When you're doing well, when you have what you need, you're comfortable it can tempt us to go, you know, I'll just go and visit Jesus and maybe I'll spend time in church and maybe I'll spend time in prayer when I hit a rough patch. But I've kind of achieved the top of the mountain or at least I'm, I'm on the mountain, I'm near it. And I don't need to rely on Jesus quite so much right now because I kind of got it. That's a temptation from the enemy. That's where he wants you to be. Now, there's a difference, and it's important because Scripture talks about humility and humiliation. It's different. Humility gives freedom. When you are humble and truly humble, it's freeing. 
No longer are you comparing yourself to the things around you, the people around you, and thinking somehow that you're less because you're not where they are. Humility is honoring. Humility, Scripture promises us, is exalted by God. C.S. Lewis, my most favorite quote machine of all time, C.S. Lewis says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You read that again for those of you who didn't catch that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Put that in an eternal perspective. My circumstances today is not my destiny. That's not where I'm going to end up. That's not my ultimate reward. I have an eye on the things that are eternal. Now, humiliation, on the other hand, the definition is to be reduced to a lower position in your eyes or another's. And then to be ashamed or embarrassed by that perception. We get to choose that. We get to choose whether we let our, our position be dictated by what other people think about us. The only person that matters what they think about you is God. And God sees you through the blood of Jesus. You are perfect. You are reconciled. You are precious. That's who God says you are. And regardless of what our worldly status says we are, that's who you are. So remember I said, oh wait, I want to go past number five. Number, number five, the poor should rejoice that their most prized possessions can never be taken away. Because what's their most prized possession? The relationship with God. Their salvation in Jesus Christ. And the rich should rejoice that their most prized possession can never be taken away. Both are equally rewarded in eternity. And both are equally dependent on Jesus for salvation. That's what James is trying to say. So remember, I said this section on wealth and poverty is a continuation of the previous idea about asking for God's wisdom in faith. And here's what that means. People who trust in God will naturally ask him for wisdom. Okay, that's what James taught last week, what we read. For wisdom and provision. And then, here's the part we need to focus on, joyfully receive whatever he gives in whatever measure he gives it. We ask for wisdom, we ask for provision, we ask for blessing, but then whatever the response is, whether it's what we looked like, what we thought it would look like, or what we had in our mind it was going to look like, we joyfully receive that, however he gives it. And we do this knowing that the rewards are eternal. Philippians 3.8, it's the last scripture before we pray. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That was written by Paul, okay? If you know anything about Paul, he was well-to-do, he had status, he had power, and very shortly after surrendering his life to Christ, started traveling the world, spreading the gospel message to the world, being beat up, 
robbed, run out of town, basically having his status stripped away from him. He went from a comfortable life to now I have nothing. Now I have nothing and I'm being chased pretty much out of every place that I go. And he says, all of that, none of that matters. All of that I would gladly give up. I count it as loss because I now know Jesus, who is, who is all gain. The rewards are eternal. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, thank you for what you have given us. Thank you for what you have blessed us with in our lives, whether that blessing um, looks like my neighbor's blessing or like I thought it was going to look. Lord, I thank you for everything that you have given me. I thank you for the breath in my lungs, the blood in my veins. I thank you for those you have surrounded me with. I thank you for a church and a family and a body that can surround me. I thank you for my salvation in Jesus Christ. I thank you for those things that are not perishable, those things that are eternal. Lord, help me to focus on the eternal. I repent of those times where I've looked at the things that I'm lacking and thought there was something wrong with me, or worse yet, something wrong with you. Father, help me to focus Help me to focus where your eyes want it. Help me to focus on eternity. Help me to help others focus on eternity. Father, I love you and I praise you. It's all yours. It's all a gift from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take communion together right now. We'll have two stations like we typically do over on the right. Uh, Gabe and I will be over there. We're serving wine. Uh, and bread and crackers. We'll have another station over here. Uh, Jackie and Stan are making their way over there. Same thing. If you would like to serve yourself or you don't want wine, in the back we have our self-serve table that's back there. And all we do is we just dip the bread. We do this in remembrance of Christ. But let's do it today just in thankfulness for his provision. His body, his blood, forever reconciling us to God. So that no matter what our current earthly circumstances look like, Our reward in heaven is secure. And that's what I'm thankful for when I take communion today. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys.